welcome to the third episode of the Squadron's Pirate Radio podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, Scott King, General Manager of the Royal Nova Scotia Yacht Squadron, and today's special guest, Club Secretary, Captain Stuart Andrews. Captain Andrews, welcome. Well, thank you very much for uh, considering that I make an interesting uh, interview subject uh, for your <laughs> podcast this early on, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll give it a go and see if there's anything that anybody might be interested in listening to. Well, Captain, I've certainly I've read your bio that um, that your agent put forward, which I must admit was um, <laughs> was very interesting in itself. I'm not sure where to start, um, but thank you for joining us. Um, I'm looking forward to to talking with you, and I'm sure the membership are looking forward to hearing a little bit more about you. You've got a number of claim to fames, claims to fame, I should say, uh, through this bio. Um, obviously, the most recent claim to fame being the current acting secretary of the club. Um, so is it true that the secretary actually runs the show or is it, uh, is it, um, how do you see that role? There are varying opinions on that. Everything from, uh, yes, runs everything to, I have heard it said by one of our members that the secretary's job is to shut up and take notes. <laughs> so it, it, it's somewhere in between those two. <laughs> Obviously an integral, um, uh, member here at the, at the club. And um, certainly held with very high regard by a great many people. So thank you again for being on the show. Um, I want to take I want to take you back in time, Captain. Back, uh, were you a sailor before the navy? No, I wasn't. Uh, I never. I was around boats and fishing as a child, but never on a sailboat until I was a midshipman. And what took you to the navy? Did you like wake up in the? Did you, were you press ganged, or did you? <laughs> what happened there? Well, my father was a pilot in the Air Force, and I, I had interests in following in his footsteps, but my eyes weren't up to the up to stuff you needed to have in the day 2020 vision to, uh, to fly. So I looked for an alternative, and I had an uncle who had been in the Navy, and that interested me, and uh, I was keen on going to Royal Military College. So off I went, picked the Navy, and uh, never looked back, and never regretted it. In fact, I'm, after a career, 38 years, I'm quite pleased that I did go into the Navy and not uh, into the Air Force as a pilot. Was that a, uh, was that a, a rude awakening, being on, on the water for an extended period of time for the first time, not obviously coming from a marine background? Did that take some adjustment or did you, did you take to it quite quickly? Well, I think quite quickly because it was all very exciting and novel and it was, it was interesting. It was an adventure and... Uh, I, I enjoyed early on, enjoyed every moment of it. Now, during your career, you can imagine there were times at sea that were not very enjoyable, but uh, for the most part, it was always good fun hanging around ships. Had you, had you traveled much um, before the Navy or was that your, sort of your first forays overseas? Yeah, that was, that was the first time I'd where, ever left the, the country, really. Where were, it was uh, with the Navy. First time to Europe was with the Navy, mm -hmm. first time to Hawaii or uh, other parts of the world was with the Navy. Mm. Where was that first country that you set, set foot on for the first time? Uh, uh, Norway. I think uh, the, my first trip over was, uh, we, we ended up in, I think, um, Tromsø, Tromsø in Norway. So that was the first time I'd set foot on European soil. And, uh, I mean, well, if you don't count Hawaii, I'd been to Hawaii before that, but uh, that's kind of almost like home. But uh, that was pretty exciting stuff. 
I had a little camera that I borrowed from somebody to take pictures because in those days not everybody had a camera. And uh, I was quite chuffed to be able to, you know, bring home photos of, of Norway and show them to my parents because uh, my mother had never been uh, over to Europe at the time. It was all very, very exciting stuff and, and good fun. You're with a, a good crowd and uh, it was hard work. And then when you got ashore, it was a good party and uh, it's all exciting sightseeing stuff and uh, a very enjoyable career if anybody out there is thinking of doing it, although most of my buddies are obviously well beyond thinking in those regards, in those terms, but uh, it, was, it was a good uh, a good run. And was the Navy a very different different place than it is now? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think culturally a lot has changed. Um, they're, they're now much more serious about uh, alcohol consumption. Um, when I was uh, a junior officer, it was uh, the, one of the duties of the officer of the day was to invent the drink of the day. Um, but slowly, as everywhere, you know, alcohol became less and less acceptable. And now it, I think it's pretty strict for the people who are on board. The other major cultural change, of course, was that uh, in all the ships I, I sailed in, except for my very last ship, there were never women on board. Uh, so that, that came as uh, a change. My very last command, I commanded four ships. And my last command, the ship I brought from uh, Victoria around to Halifax, uh, provider, HMCS provider, for the first time I had uh, female crew on board. So that was an, uh, an adjustment, you know, very late in my career. I actually found it better. I, I found the atmosphere better. Uh, and nowadays, you talk to the young sailors and young officers, they, they can't imagine the Navy without women on board. So it, it changed quite a bit over the period of time. Mind you, I mean, I went to sea back in, gosh, uh, 69, a long time ago. Mm. And certainly probably um, didn't quite have the, the technology that the that sailors these days have. Oh, not at all. It was all very Second World War stuff, hydraulic. I mean, it seemed modern and uh, amazing uh, technology at the time. But I recall that uh, on one of the more modern class ships I was on board, HMCS Kootenai, I joined as a very junior officer. We had a state-of-the-art uh, sonar system that we were selling to other And in the sonar room, there was a big bank of drawers in each. There were four great big drawers in it and each one of them if you if you pulled it out and dropped it on your foot it would break your foot i mean it weighed about 50 pounds 60 pounds each one of those four drawers was 4k of memory for a grand total <laughs> wow. of 16k of memory and that was stated there back in the 70s that was a state-of-the-art sonar yeah it's remarkable to think and it's actually relatively speaking not that far back in uh in time but um just a whole different world Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, neither of you guys were born back then, I'm sure. But, uh, Not too far off. 70, 74 was me, so I'm getting back. I'm getting oh, back. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's about when I started doing operational uh, duties with the Navy, about 73, 74. Mm. And you saw, uh, you saw quite a bit of active service as well, Captain. Yeah, I, I mean, I spent a, a fair bit of my career at sea, um, and, you know, things would pop up. A lot of it during the Cold War was uh, training, 
they'd have these big uh, fleet exercises out in the Pacific or in the North Atlantic, up towards Norway, um, and it was all getting ready for the for the war against the Russians. Uh, towards the end of my career, obviously, the there was a big shift in emphasis because when I took my first command, uh, Terra Nova, uh, I took her to sea for a shakedown. When I got back in, uh, well, I guess after two days, arrived at 11 o'clock at night in zero visibility, put it alongside, and then some runner came along and said, the Admiral wants you in his office at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I figured I'd run over a fisherman or something. <laughs> and... Uh, so I thought, God, here we go, you know, medals and swords up the Admiral, and I'll have, I'll be, I'll have been in command for two days before I lose her. And, but I, I reported the Admiral uh, the next morning, and he said, you're going to the Persian Gulf. And uh, so from that point, we spent a, a frantic two weeks preparing, and all of a sudden, we were sailing into the Mediterranean and, and through the Red Sea, something that Canadian ships hadn't done in decades, many decades. Uh, so it was an entirely new environment, and it had its own challenges because these ships were built for uh, a war, a sea war, and a potentially nuclear war, all in the North Atlantic. And all of a sudden, instead of dodging icebergs, you're sailing through water that's 50 degrees uh, centigrade, and your systems aren't really made for it. So there were a lot of challenges there. Yeah, I can imagine. There's a whole conversation right there. I mean, we're obviously going through a very weird time at the moment. Um, but back then, I mean, they, like you raised a good point. I mean, all that, all that focus and energy was, was all, you know, um, around Russia, around, around the North Atlantic. And all of a sudden that just pivoted very quickly, didn't it? I must, I must admit, that must've been, um, very unusual. Yeah, it was, so we had to, had to shift the, the line. I used to say that I was a brick in the wall of flesh between you and international communism. It was, it was a really good pickup line, but, uh, <laughs> all, that all <laughs> international communism sort of had its day and, and it is gone but and the the entire threat environment is completely different now yeah so obviously you you, you worked your way um to be uh, to have your own ship but uh, working through that journey are there any um ceos that stand out as being exceptional leaders in their in their own right anyone who comes to mind um there were there were a few that were uh, were quite inspiring, a few officers that were quite inspiring, but the memorable ones were not so much inspiring as just amazing characters. They were just the oddest ducks you could imagine, particularly back in the seventies. I think nowadays everybody's a little more uniform, if you like. Yes. Uh, but back in the day, uh, eccentricity uh, ruled the day, and the the odder you were, <laughs> the more success you seemed to have. Uh, it was a, it was a curious environment. I mean, there are a gazillion stories, and I don't wouldn't want to go into them all now. But uh, oh. quite amusing stories about some of the characters I sailed with. But along the way, there certainly were some some officers that uh, were very inspiring from you know their leadership style, and uh, that I I tried to learn from to develop my own style. Although there's not much you can play with. You're probably who you are, ninety percent of it, and ten percent you can learn from other people and toy with, but basically you are who you are, but uh, really impressive characters. And that, um, that first ship that you, that you took over, um, that must have been a fairly daunting experience, or did you, did you sort of um, find it um, quite straightforward? 
Uh, well, the, my first command uh, mm. was yeah, in August of uh, 1990. It was uh, HMCS Nova, a ship that had sailed out on the West Coast for many years and uh, was brought around to this coast uh, shortly before I took command. And uh, it's, an, it's an interesting thing that, I mean, the first time you sail away, that very first day, to, I said I wanted to take the ship out for a couple of days, just get used to it. That you stand on the bridge and uh, everybody's standing around, everything seems ready to go, and then you realize nothing's going to happen unless you tell somebody to do it. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's looking at me. <laughs> yeah, everybody's sort of staring, waiting for you. You go, oh yeah, it's me. I'm the one that says, okay, you know, ring on main engines, you know, and uh, standby lines and fenders. And, uh, and it's an interesting feeling. It's initially a little intimidating, but as soon as you, as soon as it starts, the moment it starts, the, it's just an extraordinary feeling to be in command of your own ship, mm. to realize that that the, the ship and all of the crew on board are, uh, you know, w waiting on you, and it's it's a great responsibility, and it's a fairly enjoyable feeling. Uh, my favorite times, I think, in my uh, career were in command of ships and taking them to sea. It's always mm. good fun. Mm. Well, speaking of um, ships and good fun, so the squadron. Tell me, tell me how you got uh, got involved with the squadron. Well, uh, I started sailing what you would recognize as a sailboat back in about the early '80s. I mean, I was in my early '30s, and I'd never sailed before other than as a midshipman. They used to have this uh, masochistic affair they called crash whaler, where the junior officers you'd, you'd jump in a whaler off each ship would lower a whaler, the midshipman would get in. And a whaler is what you imagine a whaler is, but it was a 27-foot heavy thing that you rode around, but it also had a mast, with a, a main mast with a gaff rig sail and a little mizzen. So you go off to a starting line, and then when they hit, fired a gun, you'd all start rowing, but then there'd be a ship would sound a horn. And as soon as they did that, you had to ship your oars, hoist the main mast, hoist the sail, hoist the mizzen, and sail for a while until they hit the horn. Then you had to derig, get the oars out, and start rowing again. And they get you going around to Squimalt Harbor like this. And 90% of your time was rigging and unrigging these sails. And it was exhausting. It was absolutely no fun. <laughs> and uh, I just said, this sailing is for the birds. I, mean, I don't want anything to do with this sailing. So it wasn't until later in my life that I got involved. And I, was, I, was, I joined the Bedford Basin Yacht Club because a, a, a fellow I knew out there was racing. I got involved in racing and then I moved on to Ruiz. And I raced out of Bedford for many, many years. Um, late 80s, uh, past Commodore Dick Rafius. And a couple other friends I had at the squadron said, why don't you join here? So I did in 88. And I was a member of both clubs for another seven or eight years. And then finally gave up the ghost of Bedford and uh, remained with the squadron. But I didn't do a lot of racing out of the squadron. My racing was on Ruiz out of Basin for the most part. I did some out of the squadron, uh, you know, a few marbleheads and whatnot. But uh, I, did, I never did the Wednesday night thing at the squadron. Right. There's still time. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Are we on next week? What's up? Yeah. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. Um, yeah, Dick, Dick Rafe is never far away from anything, really, let's be honest. Um, 
So moving moving forward, um, obviously you've seen you've been involved at a board level for for some time now, um, and seen seen the seen the club evolve over the last last few years and moving forward in the future. I mean, parking the current situation to one side. I mean, how do you see the club evolving over the in the coming years to come? Well, I I think clubs are facing challenges. Mm. I always think back to when I was a child, like I said, my father was a pilot in the Air Force, and we were always posted somewhere near an Air Force base. And my parents, you know, every weekend, certainly I think almost every Saturday night almost, there was something going on at the officers' mess. And they all, everybody went. They were, everybody felt uh, they wanted to, you know, dress up, go out, be with friends in that club environment. It happened to be an Air Force mess, not a club. But I think that used to be the thing people wanted to do. And even back in the 80s when I joined the squadron, I mean, two of the biggest events of the year were the, the Commodore's Ball and the New Year's Eve Ball. And people who were black tie, they'd love to get dressed up to the nines, go out and have a great party. And you kind of lived there. Your social life revolved around the squadron back in those days. Mine did. Squadron or Bedford, wherever I was. And now I find people don't need clubs as much as they used to. Their social lives don't revolve around it. So it's a greater challenge to make things interesting. And this is where, you know, India White's got a, uh, and their predecessors, uh, Steve Penny and, and those before them, of, of getting people out to the club to get, be interested, to, to say they, they want to be with friends at the club versus sitting at home. That's an ongoing challenge. And... Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of the social side of it. There are challenges on the sailing side, too. I mean, I think we're holding our own. Uh, I think we're doing well. But uh, there's a lot of things we have to think about and, and are thinking about through the membership committee and the board on redesigning what it is to be a member of the club, to attract people, to, to keep the club alive, because we definitely want to keep this club going it's such a wonderful place to be i think if more people knew about it um they would love just hanging around the club so hopefully we'll have some success on that front there's a lot of uh brain power uh and uh and sweat equity going into redesigning what we should look like uh, going forward because it's an aging population and we have to get people younger people coming in the door and however we have to do that we we have no choice. We've got to do it. But I'm confident we'll, we'll find some ways of improving on our uh, demographics and getting old farts like me out the door and getting new people coming in. Oh, the old farts are important, Captain. Come on. We're not... <laughs> we want everybody. everybody. <laughs> but you're right. It's, it's, you know, from our perspective, it's really around um, driving that, that grassroots participation for the kids, um, you know, get more get more kids in boats on the water, um, start more of those journeys um, early in life to build that attachment and that emotional connection to the sport as much as the club um, and grow, grow the, uh, the ability of the club to become a more central part of their life, as you mentioned before about, you know, not that long ago, but, you know, the club was definitely a, a focal point for, for not just sailing but for people's lives in general. So, you know, that's certainly something that we've been working on over the last year yeah. and we'll continue to do yeah. so. And I agree, we have an excellent emphasis on youth sailing and our sailing team, great success there. And it's, it's hooking that up with 
somebody who's 18 years old to somebody who's 35 years old, you know, bridging that gap and getting those people to want to remain in the club. And they have to feel like it's their club. They have to, young people have to feel like when they're coming in, it's not just old people sitting around, but there's other, there are friends that are there and it feels like their home. Like it used to be when I, you know, when I first joined the club, I walked in, I was 38, I guess at the time, I felt like this is my place. This is where I'm going to be. So we got to make those people feel like when they walk into the club, it is there and they have to make it theirs, you know, make your own party kind of thing. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm very confident the membership committee is, uh, you know, well constituted to look at things like that. And uh, I'm very hopeful we can make progress on those fronts. Another another hat that you wear at the club um, is the trustee committee, and and um, along with a couple of other very notable um, people involved um, with the club. And you know, it's it's while we while we talk on one side of um, you know making sure that we're contemporising what it is that we do, and and um, you know talking about all those all those aspects of strategy. I mean, obviously, what's core to the club though is the is the history and the maintaining that um, cultural awareness of what the squadron has been through and what it stands for. So um, if you want to just talk a bit to that. Um, well, yeah, I do. Um, there are a number of people over the years uh, who've, who've really uh, taken on the, the mantle of preserving our, um, our history and respecting our traditions. And, uh, you know, currently we've got uh, past Commodore George Chisholm, who's for quite a number of years has done tireless work uh, on that front and I've been uh, quite pleased to work closely with him on uh, cataloging our assets, digging into the the history of our artifacts or trophies. I mean we have a stunning collection and there there would be there wouldn't be a handful of clubs in North America that could approach the 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 brilliance of our our collection. It is just astounding, and I don't. People, it's we're we're like a museum, and as trustees, we're we're almost curators of a museum, in a way. Uh, it's a, a little organization within within the club, and uh, you know, I, I, I've, I I'm just continually amazed by doing research and finding out how deep our history is, and the connections that we have going back. The, these people we hear from out of the blue that. Uh, have some article or something that, that connects back to our history 150 years ago. You know, the items that exist in the States, a friend of mine who runs a, an antique store, Finer Things, uh, keep, I was always keeping an eye out for anything with squadron on it uh, to let us know it's out there. So it's, it's kind of like running a museum. I thoroughly enjoy it. It's, uh, it's the, the highlight of my time in the squadron, to be honest. And, uh, um, hope to keep doing it for a while but uh we've got we got a good bunch there helping out in that regard and people good bunch that's been working on this for years now um it's well taken care of i think yeah stewards of history i guess you know to, to use a to use a phrase um and certainly something that we're, i'm personally very proud of and, and and i know everyone connected to the club is and and um but i think it's probably a well it definitely is a an aspect of the club that's just so so central to um to our to our, our uh, identity, um, and something that you know while I'm as I said before looking to you know get kids into sailing, um, you know I definitely want to make sure that um, 
that that knowledge and those and those traditions are um, you know are learnt and understood by by the next generation because it's just so important. Um, I couldn't agree more. Club. Yeah, and I'm not. And this is not a sales pitch, Captain. So you're already on the show, so we don't need to worry about <laughs> getting you on. Um, ask any questions or? Uh, yeah. So uh, every month you uh, you put together an article for our Lifeline newsletter, uh, which ties into your role on the trustee committee. <laughs> Um, so you've done you've done some interesting topics in the past. Um, is there anything coming up that that you might be looking into in terms of sharing bits of our history? Well, I've had one sitting in the pipeline for quite a while and haven't got around to it because it's, it's a bit uh, intimidating because I don't want to get it wrong. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and that is women in the squadron. Uh, I received, mm. uh, gosh, it was over a year ago, uh, an email from a fellow out in Bedford who was related to a woman named Doris Black, and he wanted to know if she was the first female ma- member of the squadron. And I have done some research, and I've uh, consulted with a few people, trying to nail this down, trying to find old records, and I have s- some idea of uh, the first females to hang around the club. And it was probably about Doris mm-hmm. Black's time. It was probably in the 20s and 30s that you could be, a female could be a member of the club if she owned a boat. And apparently Doris did own a boat. And she would have been a junior member. But the, 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 stru- the membership um, categories weren't, weren't as structured uh, then as they are now. But I think it was probably in the 30s that the first women started uh, being allowed to be members because not long before that if you if you read a uh, a yearbook from uh, gosh like the 1910s or something there was, it was clearly members were gentlemen no females were members and there were even restrictions on when women could be around the club and and one passage said that uh on on tuesdays or something between three and four women were allowed on the northwest corner of the the veranda while waiting to be, I don't know, waiting for their men to show up from sea or things like this. And it really is bizarre now, but I want to do that article, but I'd really like to get it right. And uh, I'm, I'm probably close. I don't know that I can find out much more. Hopefully putting out the article will allow, would have people come out of the woodwork and say, well, no, my, you know, my, my aunt Edith, or my great aunt Edith was a member as well. But if, if fine, if we can gather that right. information, I'd like to have records of that. And in all our history, you can ask anyone now if you want as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone listening who knows? I've reached out a little bit, but uh, nobody seems to have a lot of ideas on it. You know, I, I do know that we've only had one female Commodore uh, mm-hmm. uh, ever, but the number of female members of the board. When I first sat on the board as a member at large back in the early 90s, there were no women at all. And now, I think we, it's a majority. So things are changing. We're going to have another female Commodore. And I, I think we. I'd like to sort of highlight the, the history of uh, women in the squadron. So that's an article I've got coming up at some point in the next several months. Well, I really look forward to including that. And I think that's going to be a very interesting read for everybody. And it's amazing to think that you know, our establishment in 1837, and then just 100 years after that was, you know, when the first um, females came on the scene at the club. And then, you know, here we are now, 
2020, and like you said, it's a majority. years from our bicentennial. Yeah, it's, it's, quite, quite a, yeah, it's quite a remarkable situation when you when you think about it, but um, especially given mm-hmm. in today's age, um, it, uh, it just sort of makes it feel like a whole other world ago. Um, well, ahead. Captain, hopefully if you can confirm, um, confirm that information, I, I would be very interested to hear it because I can certainly see an award uh, bearing her name um, for uh, for a young junior female sailor, or some certainly needs to be recognised. Um, just talking out loud here about uh, pioneering women at the squadron. I think that would be um, that would be a very good thing to do. Yeah, but I'm hoping the article is not the last word on it. You know, I hope that it would generate some some uh, some information coming from outside to help flesh flesh out the story. But we'll see. Well, stay tuned. Yes. Well, Captain, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day um, to share some thoughts with us and a few stories. Um, and we look forward to seeing you in and around the club. Uh, thank you again. Yes, well, I, I hope we, we're going to be seeing you around the club in the not-too-distant future. That's uh, <laughs> what we're missing right now. But uh, this too will shall pass. Absolutely. All right, thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Bye-bye.